J.I. Packer wrote a book called Knowing God, and in that book, he says this. He says, now what is a Christian? What is a Christian? There are many ways to define that, but one of the richest definitions is this. A Christian is someone who has God for his father. A Christian is someone who has God for his father. Well, what kind of father? The kind of father that gives good and perfect gifts from above. Every good and perfect gift comes from the father of lights. And uh, we have been spending the past several weeks learning about and enjoying this good and perfect gift of heaven. Uh, We're in a series right now called Hope for Heaven. And uh, in this series, we've been learning that God has prepared us for another world, and this changes everything about how we see this world. One of the distinctives of Christianity is its supernatural orientation, that we don't believe that just this life is all there is. There is another life. There is another world. And, and once we understand that God has made us for another world, it changes everything about how we see this world. We no longer see this world as a destination. And we no longer see anything else about this world as a destination. So your job not your final destination. Your possessions, not your final destination. Even your marriage, the love of your life, not your final destination. Your children, your grandchildren, nothing in this world is your final destination. And when we treat it like it is, we set ourselves up for massive disappointment because these things can't possibly deliver. This world is not our final destination. This world is preparation for our final destination. God is in the preparing business. God is in the refining business. God is in the renewal business. The reconstructing, redeeming business. That is the business that God. And so anything that happens in this life is to prepare us for the life to come. Our final destination. And just what is that final destination? Well, this is the beauty of our inheritance. Our destiny, our inheritance is a resurrected life in a resurrected body, with the resurrected Christ on a resurrected earth. That's our destiny. That when we leave this life, when we depart this life in death, that our ultimate destination is not to to flit about as ghosts. God is preparing a body for us. That's B-O-D-Y. A body is merely a container. You have a body. You are a soul. And God is preparing an incorruptible body, a resurrection body, uh, on a resurrected earth where we will live and serve and reign forever without the presence of evil or sin in any way, shape, or form. And we will have the expanded capacity 
capacity to do in the new heavens and the new earth what we've longed to do for most on this earth. And that is to love God and love people and to, 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 to give all that we are to all that God is. That's, that's our inheritance. That's, I don't know why else we want to meet here if it's not for that. If this life is all there is, I'm just going to go play golf. And that's hell enough, I'm telling you. But this life is not. There's a life to come. And what God did to his son Jesus Christ on that first resurrection Sunday morning, he is the first fruits of all that is to come in the new heavens and the new earth. And Jesus reigns on high in the heavenly realm, in the, in the CEO space of the heavenly dimension. Jesus reigns in a resurrection body. He is not in the heavenly realm in spirit. He is in a resurrection body. And at his appearing, this whole world will be transformed. You will be transformed if you are in Christ. Now, that's our destiny. And that's why we're here. Amen? Yeah. Well... The best phrase outside the Bible to describe that time in the new heavens and the new earth uh, was something that C.S. Lewis wrote in the very last page of the Chronicles of Narnia in this book, The Last Battle. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and ever, and in which every chapter is better than the one before that's our destiny in the new heavens and the new earth and you may be thinking is this too good to be true many of you are thinking that because the whole reason why we're doing this series on heaven is because you know it's something that you really uh, wanted God's word to nourish your soul with but one of the questions about heaven that many of you have, and it's why we're taking time on it today, is, you know, does God really want me in heaven? You know, how can I know for sure? How does God really feel about me? It's a, it's a real concern, even a worry for some of us, maybe many of us. Well, our scripture today speaks to that very question. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the New Testament book of Romans. Romans chapter 8, we're going to be looking at verses 14 to 18. You'll find that on page 944 of your church Bibles. 
And these verses speak to, to the ache for belonging. This father hunger ache, Romans 8, is one of the most encouraging and affirming passages in all of Scripture. And in these verses, we see that God, our Heavenly Father, wants us to have confidence that we belong to Him. And that through His Son, Jesus Christ, we are a part of His family. And in the verses that I'm about ready to read, I want you to pay attention to a word which the Apostle Paul uses, which is rich with meaning. And it's a word that touches both the head and the heart about how God truly feels about us. And it's a word that answers some of your greatest fears. Like, does God really want me in heaven with him? See if you can't hear this word as I read Romans 8, 14 to 18. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, Abba, a a term of endearment, Papa, Dad, Daddy. Abba, Father, dear Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is God's word. Did you hear it? It's the word adoption. Adoption, it's the controlling word of this paragraph It's a word that sets the tone for how God sees us and how he treats us and how he feels about us. Adoption. Now, the word adoption, the New Testament comes to us by way of uh, the Greek language. And the word adoption in the original Greek language comes from two words, which mean to put into place a son. To put into place a son. That is, adoption is the act or the process of creating a son. And the Apostle Paul uses this rich metaphor from his first century culture to convey this rich spiritual truth. So when we hear the word adoption as 21st century Americans, we need to put ourselves in the first century, in the Roman Empire. And in the Roman Empire, something interesting I learned was that adoptions rarely occurred to infants or small children or toddlers or elementary school kids. Rarely did adoptions occur. Typically, adoptions took place when the child became an adult. Um, For two reasons. Uh, One reason was that the child mortality rate was so high back in the first century. 
And the second reason is that the adoptive father wanted to see what he was getting. See? So adoptions would happen because a patriarch or an estate owner or someone from the patrician or upper class in Roman society, they had no heir. And there was no one to continue the family name or legacy. And that was a value in first century Rome. And so the father would initiate an adoption process in order to make sure that the family legacy was kept intact. And so, for instance, Julius Caesar adopted Octavian, who became Augustus Caesar, who then adopted Tiberius, who became Tiberius Caesar. And so adoption ensured a peaceful transfer of power. The adoptive father would select someone that he loved and cared for and trusted. And in the legal action of adoption, the adoptee was taken out of his previous family situation and was put into a new situation, a new relationship, a new family. The adoptive father would assume all of the debts of this newly adopted child. The old debts were canceled, and the child's only obligation was to his new father. And the adopted son, at the point of adoption, immediately became as wealthy as his father. And he had the same status as natural-born children. So it's out of this rich cultural picture... That the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Don't you see? When God adopts us as his children, he willfully initiates legal action to change our status. Adoption is what God does to transfer us out of our old family, our old way of life, our old situation, and then to put us into his family. To be adopted means that our past, our debts, our sins, our disobedience, they're gone, canceled, blotted away as if they never existed. And then at the moment of adoption in Christ, we become as wealthy as our heavenly father. And all that we have belongs to him. We have a new father and a new family and a new future and a new allegiance, new responsibilities. Now, something is the same today as it was in the first century regarding adoption. And it's this. No child could ever initiate an adoption no child could ever say, I don't like my parents. I think I'm just going to, I'm not happy with the kind of customer care I'm getting with my mom and dad. I think I'll just put myself up for adoption. And, and I'll interview prospective parents and settle on one or two. It doesn't work that way, does it? The father has to take initiative. And God, our father, has done just that. He has issued the invitation. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, 
He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. So, so we didn't initiate the adoption, but of God. We're born of God. Our Heavenly Father initiated our adoption. Once upon a time, there was a man accused of a crime. And the evidence against him was overwhelming. And when the verdict came, he was convicted, declared guilty, and sentenced. And in an act of grace, someone paid that penalty. And the judge said, you are free. But then after the acquittal, the man was leaving the courthouse. And the judge said, I want you to come home with me. I want you to have dinner at my house. You ever heard of such a thing? Well, the person said, well, okay. And then around the dinner table, the judge says, I would like to adopt you as my son. I would like for you to be a part of this family. I would like for all that I have to become yours. What? Is this really possible? Is this for real? Yes, yes, what I've just told you is the story of every Christian in this room. The story of how convicted criminals become sons and daughters of the king. It's the story of how a judge becomes a father. It's the story of our adoption. You see, the gospel is good news Not because God merely pronounces us not guilty and then shoes us out of the courthouse as if to say, now, try to keep yourself out of trouble from now on, okay? He doesn't leave us homeless outside the courthouse. He welcomes us into his house, his security. And what follows is a journey of faith in a new family where we begin to act like the very heir that our heavenly father has declared us to be. How good. Behold what manner of love the father has given unto us that we should be called sons of God. And that is what we are. Now, how is this possible? How is this possible? Well, God the Father initiated our adoption. God the Son paid for it with his own life. Look up to Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God adopts us as his children Through his only begotten child, Jesus Christ. God adopts us as his beloved by the beloved. Our adoption is due to the grace and generosity of our elder brother, Jesus. Now, in the New Testament book of Luke, chapter 15, there's a parable. It's called the parable of the lost son. And Jesus tells about a father who had two sons. And one of them took his inheritance and squandered it. And when he came to his senses, 
He came home. He told his father, just treat me like a slave. And his father said, no, never. You're my son. Here's the robe. Here are shoes. Here's the family ring. I will welcome you back as if you never left. Well, the father's elder son was furious. Dad, how can you do this? You're welcoming him back at my expense. That's my robe. That's my ring. Those are my shoes. And the father pleaded with his elder son to show grace, to forgive. Your brother was lost. Now he's found. He was dead, but now he lives. Well, the gospel is that our father, God, adopts us at the expense of our elder brother, Jesus Christ. The father says, Randy, I want you around my table. I want to adopt you. I want you in my family. And Jesus, the true elder brother, says, Father, I'll pay for that. Let him have my robe. Let him wear my ring. Here are my shoes. It's all right. Now that's a brother. That's a brother. Someone said, God is our father because Jesus is our brother. Jesus was brothering you so that God could father you. We're that younger brother. When God acted to adopt us through Christ, it wasn't because we were precious-looking orphans. We're rebels. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 5, while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. So God made a decision ahead of time to adopt me into his family knowing what he knows about me. God knew what he was getting when he adopted me. He adopted me as his child before I started acting like his child. And and here's the facts. I mean, I was an offender and an enemy right up to the time of my adoption. And I'm still a sinner. So, you know, my improved status from enemy to beloved child is just that. It's an improved status. And this new status came through Jesus' sinless life, death, burial, and resurrection for me. Can you see why Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 2 that it is by grace you have been saved through faith? And this not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Our adoption means that God the Father loves me with the same love as he does God the Son. Listen to John 17, 23. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me, and here it is, and have loved them even as you have loved me. Can you imagine the welcome that Jesus received from his heavenly father when after his ascension, he was seated at the right hand of the father, that tidal wave of love from father to son. Listen, listen. Adoption means that he loves you no less. No less. That you have loved them even as you have loved me. Now listen to me. Do you feed on that when your faith feels weak? Do you let that nourish your soul when you are down? 
What do you turn to when dark doubt hovers? Is it this? Is it, is it John 17, 23, that you have loved them even as you have loved me? Or do you turn to something else? Do you turn to your job? Do you turn to the internet? Do you turn to chemicals that have no business in your body? Or other destructive habits or fantasies about what life would be like if only. Listen to me. John 17, 23 is no fantasy. This is reality that you have loved them even as you have loved me. Meditate on the Father's love for the Son and remember He loves you no less. Adoption. God the Father initiated it. God the Son financed it with his own life. And now, God the Holy Spirit, present tense, testifies to it. Are you beginning to figure out that there is a threeness to the oneness of God? Christianity does not teach that there are three gods. Christianity teaches that there is one God in three persons. So if you're doing math, don't do one plus one plus one equals three. That's the wrong kind of math. You've got to do algebra. Three X equals Y. One God existing in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And don't ask me to explain it. God the Spirit, present tense, assures us that we are children of God. Present tense. Meaning that God the Spirit assures the Christians in the first century. God the Spirit assures Christians here and now, this church. That we are children of God. Verses 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. The Holy Spirit bears witness. The Holy Spirit testifies. The Holy Spirit gives evidences that we belong to... The Holy Spirit is a he, not an it. The Holy Spirit is a person. Jesus said to his disciples that it would be to their advantage for him to return to his heavenly Father so that he might send his Holy Spirit upon them. A pastor and author, J.D. Greer, has written an excellent book on the Holy Spirit titled, Jesus Continued. And the subtitle, is what the book is about. Why the Spirit inside you is better than Jesus beside you. See, often we would think that you know, my life would be better if, if I could just sit next to Jesus personally and physically. Jesus said no. Jesus himself said no. No, it's to your advantage that I go away. Because in going and returning and ascending and being seated at the right hand of the Father, he then sends his Holy Spirit upon his people. 
J.D. Greer wrote, at the ascension, Jesus did not become an absentee God. He, as God, simply came to his disciples as a different person. In the Holy Spirit, God is literally with us until the end of the age. And he has promised never to go away, forsake us, or leave us stranded. In our darkest moment, even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death and we can't see our hand in front of our face, he has promised to be with us. He is as real as the breath in our lungs. Jesus claimed. That having the Holy Spirit in us would be better than having him beside us. And then Greer challenges me with this question. Do you feel as though your relationship with the Holy Spirit is better than if you had Jesus for a personal companion? Is the Spirit's presence inside you really preferable than having Jesus beside you? And if not, might that mean we're missing something? Something really important? See, Christianity is more than just a list of religious doctrines to follow. Christianity is a dynamic relationship in which you walk with God the Spirit and move in His power. It's personal. It's relational. It's interactive. And God the Spirit testifies to us. Randy, this is the real deal. Randy, you are in fact a child of God. And when you read the word of Christ, you can hear the Spirit of Christ speaking. You really do belong to your Father. He's not mad at you. In Christ, God has no negative thoughts about you. And it's not just in writing either. It's experiential evidence. God the Spirit enters your life. God takes up residence in your heart. And God produces the kind of character traits that otherwise would not be produced if he were not there. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Listen, parents, when you adopt children, you can share everything that you have with your adoptive child. You You can share your possessions, you can share your life, you can share your love, but you cannot share your DNA. But the good news The glory of the gospel is that God in his Holy Spirit has poured out his DNA upon us in his spirit who indwells our lives and leads us day by day to becoming more and more like Jesus. And and when the produce, the fruit The harvest of the Holy Spirit is flowing through your life. And when he is producing love and joy and peace, you then become so focused on Christ and loving him and loving others as Christ would love that you no longer find yourself asking questions like, well, does God really want me in heaven? 
You're not really asking questions about yourself at all. You know, our teams that, you know, we've sent to Peru and the Dominican Republic and this week Haiti and our servants who've been a part of kindergarten readiness with Cradle to Career. I mean, these saints are meeting needs with love and they're going in order to give, to serve, to encourage. None have returned from these experiences Thinking to themselves, now how does God feel about me? How am I doing? (laughs) No. And why? Because they're so busy focusing on others that they don't have time to focus on themselves. They're not worried about themselves. They're confident in Christ. They're secure and they're without fear. And so you didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You've received a spirit of adoption. And if we are adopted, then we are children. And if we are children, verse 17, we are heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him. In order that we may also be glorified with him. Not all of those experiences are pleasant. but they are spirit-empowered. Last Wednesday night, church family, nine brothers and sisters in Christ were ruthlessly murdered in a racist act of terror. A stranger appeared in their prayer meeting, and there's no doubt that the pastor and those there welcomed this stranger into their midst and offered hospitality to him. They didn't cart him, They didn't frisk him. They didn't make him walk through a metal detector. They welcomed him because they believed that's what Jesus would do. And the stranger sat with them while they prayed in the name of Jesus before he opened fire. He was the Judas who would betray them. Paul says in Romans 8, 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Did you read about the glory revealed in court on Friday? The the, the routine bond hearing for Dylan Roof turned into a raw testament of loss and reconciliation the chief magistrate invited five relatives of the nine victims to speak directly to the accused. And one by one, they stood in the courtroom, and one by one, they addressed the accused. And one by one, they told him that he had hurt them, and one by one, they said that they forgave him. One family member whose sister was slain said, we are the family that love built. We have no room for hate, so we forgive. Another family member of one of the victims said, I just want everyone to know I forgive you. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people, but I forgive you. And still another, you have killed some of the most beautiful people that I know. Every fiber in my body hurts And I will never be the same. 
May God have mercy on your soul. Who says that? Who speaks like that? I know. I know. People who know they are children of their heavenly father say that. People who know what Jesus did to bring them to heaven say that. People who know that the Holy Spirit of God lives in and through them say that. Does God really want us in heaven with him? Church family. There is no one more than God who wants us in heaven with him. No one. God the Father initiated our adoption. God the Son financed our adoption. And God the Holy Spirit testifies and assures us that we are in Christ children of the living God. And so the poet said, I am his by purchase and his by conquest. I am his by donation and I am his by election. I am his by promise and I am his by redemption. I am wholly his. I am extremely his. I am universally his. I am eternally his. Once I was a slave, now I am a son. Once I was dead, now I'm alive. Once I was darkness, now I am light in Christ. Once I was an heir of hell, now I'm an heir of heaven. Once I was under the spirit of bondage, now I am under the spirit of of adoption. Is it any wonder that the Apostle Paul would say in Romans 8.31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against us? God's elect. It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, no, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.